Let's just uh, get right into the story this morning. We're going through the book of Acts. We're looking at the history of our witness as the church um, because we believe that knowing our story, knowing our roots helps us know how to be who we are. That going backwards helps us move forwards because it helps us tap into the identity that we have always had uh, as God's people. Acts tells the story of what Jesus continues to do by his Holy Spirit through the church. And that is a story that continues today and a story we are a part of. So let's look at Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There's a, uh, this is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join uh, this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? All right, so we'll, we'll stop there. Um, this is the first of three stories about people who have a, a radical experience of not knowing God and then knowing God in Christ. Uh, first of three stories, this is the Ethiopian eunuch, and next week we'll look at Paul, or Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle, and then Cornelius, the first uh, European Gentile. This is the first African Gentile, who, non-Jew, who becomes a Christian. And so it's three stories of conversion. What we've seen in Acts so far is big groups of people hearing the good news about Jesus, and they've responded, and they've come to the Lord, and they've said, we trust, we trust this Jesus, we trust the message, and we want to respond in, in, in faith and obedience. And so we've seen large groups up to this point responding, and the Lord's adding to the number of the church daily, those who are being rescued, saved, and it's amazing. And now we're zooming in, the author, Luke, the author of Acts, is zooming in and saying, now what does that conversion look like on an individual level, on a personal level, right? So we've seen it large scale. Now we're kind of zeroing in and saying, like, what does it look like in the life of a person to trust the good news of Jesus? Um, and so these are three stories of conversion. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word conversion. Some of you might think it's fo football season. You might think, yeah, when you go from having a third down to a first down, right? So I don't know if you hear conversion and think more chances to get it right, um, that would be a distortion of Christian faith. Conversion is not more chances to try harder. Uh, let's be clear about that. Uh, I didn't come to faith so I could just keep trying harder. Uh, I actually uh, was converted, right? Now, so uh, when I was in uh, middle school and high school, we were talking about this this morning, actually, uh, I was really into punk rock music. Like, that was my scene. Like, just punk all the way. I did not have taste for much outside of that range, um, I could kind of tolerate it, but I wasn't really open. Like, if it wasn't, like, distortion up, fast beat, like, a lot of angst, like, I just didn't care if it wasn't that. And so, um, when I went to college, one of my friends, uh, Andy, uh, introduced me to this band Radiohead, right? And I, I thought, that's not music. It's not, it's not punk. Like, so it's not, it's not even worth listening to. In fact, I was convinced, like, nah, I don't know that it is music because it's not four chords and a punk beat. 
uh, and it felt really strange to me, and I was convinced I didn't like it. Um, and so it, it turns out, though, that Radiohead's a group of guys who are they're from Oxford. They met at Oxford. They're brilliant, right? Like, the music they're making is really smart music, actually. And so, like, they're just they're trying to say something as artists, but I didn't have ears for it. And so my friend Andy said, here's you two, uh, Octune Baby. I want you to just listen to this album and sit with it for a bit. I was like, ah, I guess I'll listen to Octune Baby. Right? And so I sat down, and I had never heard it, I, I'm embarrassed to say, until college. And so I sat down with Octune Baby. And then about a week later, he said, let's listen to The Benz, the first Radiohead album. I'm like, fine, all right, we'll do it. And so we listened to The Benz together, and I was like, oh, that might be music. I actually kind of like this music, right? And so he introduced me, and we started going through the albums together. And by the time I got to OK Computer, I was convinced. I was like, these guys are brilliant. This is amazing. I love Radiohead. Like, I need a T-shirt. And so uh, what Andy had done is he had set me up to make sense of something by giving me the context, right? He gave me some musical context to begin to understand where Radiohead was developing from. And so it went from something that was like incoherent noise to me that was like really beautiful music at a point in time. Like there was a point in time listening to The Bends where I was like, ah, this is awesome. But then I kept listening and it got richer and more profound and then it opened up a whole bunch of other uh, musical interests for me. And I got into more bands because I got into Octane Baby and then Radiohead. Are you with me? So it's a point in time, but it was also a process. It was this gradual direction that opened up a whole bunch of vistas for me musically. And that, I would contend to you this morning that conversion is like that. That conversion, uh, it breaks down as a metaphor because in the Christian life, we're not just passive listeners. We're actually, we actively participate in a whole new quality of life that Jesus calls eternal life in John. It means the life from above, God's life here now. But conversion is both a moment and a whole new direction for our life. That's what it is biblically. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at how Christian conversion happens and what it consists of and then also where it leads. So how it happens and what it consists of and where it leads. In the next two weeks we'll see other examples of conversion so that this mosaic of uh, what it looks like to enter Christian life looks like. We'll see it unfold uh, in the narrative. So how does Christian conversion happen? Who brings it about? Uh, notice that this story begins with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord comes in and says, Philip, go south, right? Now keep in mind, Philip, we met him a couple weeks ago in chapter six. He's one of the men who's uh, elected to serve widows who are Hellenistic in culture, Greek-speaking widows, excuse me, who uh, don't have food, right? So he's, he's a table server, Right? And he's been dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution against Jesus followers. So all these Jesus followers leave Jerusalem because the, the Jewish powers that be are persecuting, dragging people into prison, and beginning to kill folks. And so God has taken the initiative in this story. He takes the initiative by moving Philip out into this region of Samaria. And Philip is having a phenomenal cross-cultural ministry where he's bringing the gospel to a, a people who have been hated by Jews for centuries. And so they're crossing massive cultural barriers. And these Samaritans are becoming Christians, and uh, they're now belonging in this family of Jesus instead of being the hated other. And, and at the height of his influence and ministry in this place, God says, actually, get up and go. 
What? Like, this is inexplicable. And so he's told to leave at the height of his influence. And again, God's initiative doesn't always make sense in our life. Um, nor does God's initiative in our life always align with comfort or convenience. Right? God's initiative rarely aligns with comfort or convenience or power and privilege. And so he says, get up and go south to a deserted town called Gaza, down in the desert. And Philip hears and obeys. Like you think, fast forward to Romans 10, where Paul says, how will they believe if no one preaches, and how will they preach if no one is sent? Well, Philip responds. He's sent by the Lord, and he preaches, and this guy gets saved, and it's amazing. And so who does Philip see when he's now in this deserted place? He's, he's listened, he's obeyed, he's gone with God, even though it doesn't make any sense, and he sees somebody who doesn't make any sense either. He sees this guy who's an Ethiopian eunuch, somebody who's culturally, religiously, sexually very different than himself as a middle-class conservative, conservative Jewish man. Right? This is, basically, he runs into a dude who is completely off the grid for any Jewish person to interact with, period, end of story. Like, that, that's not a person God works with. I'm out, right? Like, that's what any normal Jewish first-century person would have thought. But the text tells us who Philip runs into. He runs into a person who's Ethiopian, a eunuch, and is the CFO of Queen Candace's uh, treasury. Now, Candace is... Um, a title, it's not a name, so she's actually the ruling matriarch, if you will, of the country of Nubia, modern-day Sudan, and so literally this guy is from the end of the earth. All the ancients saw Nubia or the Ethiopian kingdom as literally the end of the world, and so if you went there, you had maybe one bar and no internet, right? Like it was, you are not coming back from, that's like the edge of the world, and so this man is African, so he's racially different than Philip. This is a black man, and which in ancient world was actually a point of interest, not actually a point of um, uh, per, uh, discrimination, but nonetheless for a Jew to interact with a Gentile who's racially different, not happening within their mindset. And so he's racially different, but he's also he's sexually altered. He's castrated. It means that he is very brutal, right? But it was far more common than you would think. He worked for the royal family, and if you wanted to have a high position of status in the royal family uh, and you weren't a part of the royal family, guess what the price was, right? It keeps your non-royal gene pool out of our royal gene pool, just in case you got interested in the king's harem or the king's wife, right? Are you with me? And so it was kind of crowd control for the ancient world in that way. And so he is uh, the CFO. He's, uh, in other words, he's an incredibly prestigious man. He's as successful as it gets. He has a chariot, which very few people in the population would have ever had, so he's incredibly rich. He has access to power, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Again, uh, we think about, like, what does it cost to have a Bible? <laughs> Actually, it's free if you have a smartphone. You just download it, right? Uh, but in the ancient world, you didn't have your own scrolls. Like, that wasn't a thing. It was maybe your town was lucky to have the Torah, but it was incredibly expensive. And so this guy has the Isaiah scroll, and he's reading it. And so, in other words, he is incredibly successful, incredibly rich, and he's paid a terrible price for it as well. Right? He's at the top, but he's had to be altered to get there. Uh, and this plays into his experience in Judaism. Uh, we would have known that uh, even though he was very successful 
It would be very strange for somebody to travel from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. It makes no sense. In fact, if he was satisfied with his status and his privilege and what he had, he would have never left for that kind of journey. But to leave your home religion, to travel months to get to somewhere else, to take months off of work, right, to get to another place to worship the God of Israel, who maybe you've heard about through some traveler, uh, to go to the temple And then to find out, as a Gentile and as somebody who's been castrated, you don't get to participate. You have to stay out in this space, not full participation in worship. And so he's now experiencing exclusion. So on one hand, he's experiencing enough discontent to leave his world and go pursue a foreign god, the god of Israel, but then he gets there and he finds himself excluded. He's not probably doing great. And so he's reading Isaiah, which is interesting, because although Deuteronomy 23 said that eunuchs were prohibited from uh, being in the temple, he would also know from Isaiah 56 that there's a coming day when God says, let not the foreigner right, say that, uh, or the eunuch say that I'm only a dry tree, right? And there's this prophecy in Isaiah 56 about eunuchs being included in this family of uh, new creation. It's awesome. And so he's reading this, and he's made this trip, but he's terribly disappointed. And so he's on his way back. He's reading Isaiah um, but what he's experienced and heard so far hasn't become music to him yet, right? The God of Israel doesn't make sense to him yet. And so the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join the chariot. Have a chat at the chariot. And so the Phil- Philip then runs and hears him reading. I love that it says he runs because that probably means the chariot's going. And there's Philip running alongside like, what you reading? You understand that? <sighs> right? Like, I don't know. He's probably in better shape than I would have been in. But... Uh, So Philip runs alongside him. He hears him reading out loud, which is how people read in the ancient world, and it's Isaiah 53. This is a passage about God's suffering servant. We'll come to that in a minute. And so Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And there's so much that's fascinating in this story, and it would take weeks to like plumb the depths of what's happening here. But the question I want to ask today is, how does conversion happen? Who's bringing it about? Did the eunuch bring about his own conversion? Did Philip bring it about? My answer is yes and no, right? Yes, the eunuch's asking questions. He's obviously dissatisfied with life's answers, but no, because where are those questions coming from? Who's doing the searching? And and yes, Philip's participating in a conversation, but no, because Philip's actually been told by an angel and now the spirit, and he's just listening and obeying. So here's the point I want to make here is that conversion happens because there's a divine agent who brings it about that God himself brings about this kind of change in our life. When the religious leader Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in John 3, he's got questions and uh, he wants to know how it's possible, to use Jesus' metaphor, to be born again or born when they're old. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, unless one is born of of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus has an opinion about this. He says that entrance into the kingdom is carried out by the Spirit. Again, later in John 6, when the people are grumbling because they think Jesus is just this scandalous son of Joseph, um, he says, no one comes to the Father unless, or no one comes to me, excuse me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, the how of conversion starts with God. He draws us to himself. So where else does our discontent come from? if not from God. 
We're made for him. Augustine says at the beginning of his spiritual autobiography called The Confessions, he says, our hearts are restless until they learn to rest in you. Augustine had this view of the human heart that it was like other objects in nature where we, things in nature move to a place of rest. Right? If something's buoyant and it's underwater, it moves to rest at the surface. If something's not, it moves to rest at the bottom. And the heart, the human heart, moves to rest when it's in right relationship with God. He says, my heart's restless. It's, it's moving about until it finds its rest in its creator. And so we're designed to long for God. All religions say essentially this, that there's a way to get to God, right? Which means that the problem isn't deep enough, usually, and the solution is usually human-centered. But Christianity says you're lost where you are. You have a very deep problem, and you can't do anything about it. But there's a God who's made a move towards you. The solution isn't on you. The solution's on God. He moves to you. It starts with God. It shows the depth and it shows the solution. But the angel says to Philip, leave, right? Then the Spirit says to Philip, go over there. Then the Spirit-inspired words of Isaiah provoke the questions. And then, right, the Spirit carries Philip off. We'll see that in a minute. So God's carrying about, ca- carrying on this whole thing of conversion. And, and here's the point in where it touches down in our life. When we talk about our vision here, our vision is to join God in his mission of reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. In other words, the mission is God's, not ours. It's the Holy Spirit who is the missionary. We're just the witnesses. We're the witnesses. And so God is the strategist. He's the agent that brings about conversion. So it means instead of bearing a burden in my life of other people's decisions and conversion related to faith, I can be non-anxious here, and I can just trust that God himself is the missionary who draws people. I just have to be faithful as a witness. I get to tell the story. And he actually carries, about, uh, carries out conversion. So the results are all about him. But it also means that we're ready to hear and obey, like Philip. That when our circumstances suddenly stop making sense, right? And things are like moving in a way we wouldn't have chosen. We have to recognize that there is a missionary strategist at work in our life. That when we have an inexplicable situation like Philip, guess what? You are a part of a stream of God's mission. And he's moving you, he's the missionary, you're the witness. And so he has a plan for that. And so the question is whether or not we're ready to accept his strategy and join him in his mission. What if Philip's posture had been closed off? What if he had said, no, I am not talking to that guy, right? Racially, culturally, sexually off the grid for the kind of person I associate with, I'm not going to the chariot, thank you very much. What would happen? Instead, well, you actually have to be ready to accept that the Spirit is always moving the people of God across barriers, that He's actually breaking barriers. And we're going to see over the next few weeks in, in the book of Acts, one of the key things that He does is He breaks down racial barriers, and He has us as one body, um, Jew and Gentile, and then all kinds of Gentiles working out what it looks like to be the people of God in our world. And the Spirit would have us have conversation as witnesses to people that you would never choose to be in on the kingdom life. But then let's back up for a second and ask this question. Would you have chosen you to be a witness to Jesus? No, right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose to 
the foolish things to shame the wise, right? He, not many of you are wise or powerful, right? He chose the things that are not, or are not to nullify the things that are. That's the way the gospel works in our life and changes our identity. So the Spirit draws who he draws. We have an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of that kind of transformation story. Now, some of you are here today, and the Spirit's actively drawing you, right? Some of you are here today, and you're actually compelled toward Jesus in a way that doesn't, you just haven't been before. Maybe you're like the eunuch in that you have career and success, but you've paid a price for it. Certainly not castration, but perhaps paid the price of family or health or care for your own soul. And now you're at a spot where maybe you're, you're where the world says you should be fulfilled, but you're finding yourself deeply unfulfilled. I would say to you, that is the Spirit of God being so gracious to help you see your hunger for Him. And so others of you have been outsiders to the church, Right? You've been outsiders to the church. You've been maybe hurt by the church or shunned by the church in some way. You find yourself like the Ethiopian asking questions, going back to the scriptures and saying, wait, that experience doesn't make sense of what I'm reading here. Who is this about? Such a good question. And that brings us to the next point, which is what conversion consists of. So that's how, how it happens or right, how conversion takes place. It's the spirit of God that works in our life. But what does it consist of? What's the nature of it? What's the nature of conversion? Philip joins the chariot, and he hears the Ethiopian man, and he's reading the Bible. He goes, do you understand what you're reading? This is a great question, actually, for those of you who are interacting with people um, who don't know Jesus. Like, sit down and read this. Like, you don't need anything else, really. Like, let's just open the scriptures and go, hey, this is kind of crazy. I understand. But let's read the story. And let me ask you, like, do you understand what it's saying? Start there. And so he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? This is a hard book in some places. It's also simple and it's also complex. And so he says, how can, any, how can I understand this unless somebody guides me? And so he invites Philip, quit running and get in my chariot. Right? Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and so he gets in the chariot. And now the passage of scripture that he's reading is this. And he quotes Isaiah 53, like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Verse 33, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. This is a profound quote. Uh, Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most um, articulate, dense passages pointing to a substitute, someone who takes the place of someone else. And uh, it's actually a passage that Jesus, in both Mark and Luke, uses to refer to himself as the servant, as the one who gives his life as a ransom for many. And so this is a Jesus, uh, uh, this is a passage that Jesus himself has claimed is actually about him, okay? So we're just, we're going off of what Jesus says here. And so... Again, how does this guy have Isaiah in his hands if God were not already pursuing him? And the passage is out of Isaiah 53. It's this depiction of Yahweh, the God of Israel, his suffering servant who suffers as a substitute. And the text says that this servant is pierced for transgressions. That is another word for sin, for wrongdoing, for missing the mark and having a disordered love and affection for a a false God, substituting God for uh, something else for God in his place. And so this... Suffering servant is an offering for guilt, and God's servant 
would suffer to bring healing to others. All of these things are in this passage. And so what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah 53 is he's creating a little mental shelf and a little category for our brains. When we get to the New Testament and we read about Jesus, we go, wait a second, this sounds familiar. Uh, and so when my friend Andy said, you need to sit down and listen to Octune Baby, right? I was sitting there in my, the darkness of only liking punk rock and not everything else with it. Right? I, I, which I still, dude, like, I still follow punk bands on Instagram. So I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm in. But when he said, hey, listen to you two, listen to Octane Baby, what he was doing is he's saying, I want you to understand Radiohead. So I'm trying to help you have the context that they're burst out of. And so Isaiah 53 is this mind-blowing piece of context that taps us into a larger narrative and a larger story, which is, actually starts on page one of this thing. And so this is what Luke tells us. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And Philip says, uh, he opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. So he begins with the scripture and he tells them the story about Jesus, and he's, which is great. Paul also tells Timothy about this, that from childhood he's been taught and acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, and he says they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is what the story does. It points us in the direction of a savior. It's not primarily a manual for ethical behavior. It's not an uh, eternal fire insurance policy it's a unified story that points to Jesus. And the question we're asking is, what does conversion consist of? What's its, pri- its, its nature? And it's not primarily behavior change. It's primarily about a person. It's about a moment when the story of Jesus becomes intellectually coherent to you. Right? Where you understand your own transgression. I've crossed a line spiritually and ethically, and there's no going back. And I understand that that transgression's been transferred to another person who is perfect. He was denied justice so that I could have uh, uh, freedom from guilt, that he's the just judge who's been judged in our place, to use the language of Karl Barth. He's the one who's been ultimately cut off and excluded in our place so that we could become included in his place. When this story becomes intellectually coherent to you, it becomes music. And Isaiah gives the categories to make sense of the Jesus story. And then Philip tells the Jesus story, and it doesn't, it's not just intellectually coherent, it becomes existentially melting, right? It's intellectually coherent in that it's a story that's unified and it actually can make sense. But it's existentially melting in that it's profoundly personal to you. Because it's not just a savior in a story, he's your savior of your story. And so conversion consists of seeing Jesus, being converted from viewing him as another religious teacher to experiencing him as your substitute who stands in your place, who takes your shame, who takes your guilt, and he offers you his righteousness and his life and his spirit and his inclusion in the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he becomes beautiful to you. And my tendency, by the way, is when I, my tendency is not to be silent, right? My tendency is to be quite defensive, (laughs) okay? Husbands, anybody else do that? All right, so, and you see it when you're raising your kids too. You're like, just quit being so defensive. 
And then, like, two seconds later, you go, oh, shoot, that's a learned pattern. Like, that's sin, but it's also something I model, right? And so my tendency is not to be silent. My tendency is to defend myself and to assert, like, I'm good, I'm right. I know I'm the only person in the room who's like that. But the story of Jesus says that, according to Isaiah, he was like a lamb, which is biblical imagery. The first lamb you get in the Bible is in Exodus, where the destroying angel is going to come through and take the firstborn out of, uh, and, and kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt because of their terrible oppression and the way they've killed the firstborn of Israel, right? And so you come and you take a lamb and you put the blood on your doorpost as a way of saying, I'm under the covering and the blood of the lamb. I'm trusting this provision of a sacrifice right, to provide my life. And so Jesus fits into that category. But he is a lamb who is silent, and that is that he did not defend himself. And here's the thing, he's the only one who is infinitely worthy, and he doesn't defend himself, and he takes our judgment, and he makes, uh, and it, by taking our judgment, he makes the ultimate defense for us who are defenseless when it comes to our sin. The New Testament calls him an advocate or a high priest, and he represents us in all of his perfection. And so what does it mean? It means that conversion means remaining silent instead of standing on all of my works and saying, look at how good I am. Look at how worthy I am. I'm silent, and I say, no, I'm standing on Jesus. I'm standing on his silence, that his worthiness is now my worthiness. His judgment is my defense, and so I don't actually have to defend myself. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to defend anything because he's a better defense, and he's better worth than all of my works. Are you with me? Hmm. And so you can make that claim once he's music to you. Once it makes sense, once it's coherent and it's beautiful, all of a sudden you can make that claim that he's your defense. And he becomes the lens through which you see everything else and everything else begins to make sense. C.S. Lewis famously said that he doesn't believe the sun so much by looking at it, but by seeing everything by its light. And we begin when we're converted genuinely, when he's existentially melting and intellectually coherent, what happens to us is we begin to see everything through the lens of who he is. We begin to see life through his grace. We begin to see conflict through his grace. We begin to see other people's offenses toward us through the lens of his forgiveness. We begin to see fear in our society through the lens of our peace in him. Do you understand how transforming the gospel is to us? So conversion is this moment where he, he makes sense of everything for you. And it might not all fit together all at once, and it takes a lifetime, but it begins to be this lens through which you see everything else. And so that brings us to the last observation, which is where conversion leads us, or what's its direction. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? love this. This is awesome. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, or Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and he, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I know when I first became a Christian, I was like, wow, that's a cool story. I wonder if I can like, be carried away by the Spirit to Hawaii or like Paris. And it hasn't worked that way in my life. I don't know if this is a miracle story, if this is like the Spirit just said, actually, you're going this way, and he just peaced out. Uh, it could be either. It doesn't, 
It doesn't matter. I don't believe in a closed universe, but I, also, I don't think the Bible teaches that. So something could have happened that way, but that's not the point. The point is the Spirit's the author of the story. The Spirit is the one who's guiding the Spirit's the missionary. So two things happen here. First of all, the eunuch asks, what prevents me from being baptized? And baptism, if you're new to church, or if you're old at church but you've missed it, baptism is a symbol. It's a beautiful symbol of our union with Jesus. According to Romans 6, we, by faith in Christ, have died with him, and we've been raised with him. And so we're dead to sin and alive to God. That's the language of Paul in Romans 6, that we're dead to the sentence of guilt over our life because of sin. We're dead to the power of sin is the final word, that I can actually not sin. Uh, I'm dead to the shame of my enslavement to sin and death, and I'm made alive now in union with Jesus Christ. But listen to his question, what prevents me? His whole life of relating to God and the God of Israel was a story of prevention. He was prevented from fellowship. He was prevented from the symbol of belonging in Israel, which would have been circumcision, not happening for him. But now, through the unique offering of Jesus Christ in our place, the eunuch has total inclusion. He's no longer prevented from belonging. And so naturally, does anything prevent me from belonging? Does anything prevent me from expressing this union that I have with the Savior that Isaiah was talking about? The good news is, no, nothing prevents you. Nothing prevents you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. And so this is where conversion leads. It leads to a life of belonging and obedience that are rooted in are identifying with Jesus, that we identify with Jesus because he identified with us, and we belong to him, and we obey him. And so baptism symbolizes our belonging, and it also is an act of obedience. And this is the direction of our life, and it's motivated by joy. He goes away rejoicing. This isn't duty, it's joy. One of the amazing realities of conversion is it actually changes our nature, you become a new creature. And so Paul says in Rome, uh, sorry, Ephesians 4, he says, walk worthy of the calling you have in Christ. Let me, make, let me fact check myself there. Uh, yeah, it says, Ephesians 4, I urge you as a prisoner, walk worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Right? And so what he's saying is this. He's saying, you have a calling. You're a son or daughter of God. You're united to Christ the Son, and you have His Spirit in you. Guess what? Live in a way that is aligned with who you actually are. So conversion is it, it, it's carried out by the Spirit. He draws us. It consists of an encounter with Jesus where He makes sense, where you see Him in your place and you in His, and now it leads in a whole new direction of obedience and life, living, uh, life reflecting your union with Him more and more at an increasing measure. And so what we do is we go to the table where we're reminded of where our worthiness comes from. It comes from His worthiness, and it, it is this place where we nature, or nurture every week this reality that we belong, and we belong together as a family of God at His table. By His blood, by His body, we're one, and we're worthy because He's worthy and because He stood in our place. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this amazing reality that you are our substitute and our savior, but you're not just that, you're our king and you lead us into new life. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that 
Father, you adopt us, Son, you unite us to yourself, and Spirit, you empower us and you send us in your name to bear witness to your reality. God, we thank you that conversion is to the depths of our being, not just the surface, but the depths. And so, Lord, we come to your table as worshipers because you're worthy and you've made us worthy to participate and you've made us, made us worthy to belong. And so we're grateful this morning. So we worship you. We want to leave here rejoicing just like the Ethiopian man did. We want to leave here like Philip, ready to follow the Spirit, to bear witness to the reality of Jesus, where you send us and how you send us across whatever barrier is put in front of us because it's your Spirit that's leading us as your people. That's our prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name.